the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome back, Justin. How are you, Lindsay? I'm already laughing about the movie that we're going to be talking about today. I think uh, this is the most fun I've had watching a movie yeah. multiple times for an episode that we're doing. <laughs> There's so much to watch or so much to look for or so much to rediscover in this movie that we're talking about today, Coming Listen, to America. Eddie Murphy's Coming to America, yeah. And uh, this whole episode is going to be Eddie Murphy-centric. All right. We've got uh, our picks of the week are Eddie Murphy-centric. What's your pick of the week? I, I chose A Life with uh, Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence. That was a good choice. I yeah. love me some Martin Lawrence, too. And uh, what was your pick? I did The Golden Child from 86. That's a good one. Yeah. I recently watched that one not yeah. too long ago, too. Yeah. I've been kind of on an Eddie Murphy binge the last couple weeks i did the same thing too i i uh rewatched vampire in brooklyn too really yeah i gotta ask you about that i forgot that wes craven did that yeah yeah i don't re- I remember liking that one very much at all i'm i i, I actually don't have too many bad things to say but, about it but i will say but, i did i was watching an interview with Eddie murphy and mm-hmm. he he was talking about how they were going to make vampire in brooklyn mm-hmm. and uh he gave a description of the plot that was like way different than what they shot whoa yeah i didn't go that deep into researching wild that. huh yeah um, i don't hate that movie i enjoyed it anyway but, you know we wanted to do an eddie murphy movie and i think this is like the perfect movie this was like yeah. at the height of his career uh, at the height of his powers at the height of his comedic strengths and i think this one like has everything going for it story uh script acting humor comedy and this is also the first movie in which Eddie Murphy did the heavy makeup and multiple character thing in his first five films he did with makeup effects man Rick Baker. Yeah, I know we're so used to seeing him do that in, in movies. And I know that, of course, makeup changes, things that prosthetics have gotten a little bit more advanced since 1988 when this movie came out. But man, I love the way this movie looks and the makeup yeah, in it, it is unparalleled. So it seemed Except like the, actually maybe not Ellen Parallel yeah. because Rick Baker did other stuff yeah. with Eddie Murphy too. Never mind. And they would just do all this digitally now too. I don't think they would even oh, use yeah, the makeup. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. So yeah, it seemed like the perfect fit for an Eddie Murphy for for our main feature. We'll definitely talk a little bit about Eddie Murphy's career. We'll go a little bit behind the scenes and to some things about the movie maybe you don't know. We'll talk about. Um, Rick Baker, special effects. Talk about uh, his relationship with John Landis and John Landis oh, yeah. is the director of the film. They it's did three topic. movies, three movies together, and a uh, little bit about the cast, a little bit of uh, controversy about the script. Mm-hmm. So we'll delve into quite a few things, and then uh, also, like we said, go into our picks of the week and round it all out with a Murray moment. But before we get into our main topic of discussion in our in our first clip Lindsay, can you just uh, bring us up to date what is coming to america about i've got an inkling what's about from the title <laughs> sometimes the titles give it away you have a good setup for for something for something all right so coming to america is basically this after he's set up for his arranged marriage a wealthy prince decides to break from tradition and he travels to america specifically new york Uh, intent on finding and falling in love with a woman who loves him for who he is and not because he's wealthy prince, wealthy heir to uh, a throne in Africa. I mean, there's a lot that happens here. He's got a quirky sidekick. When he moves to America, decides to get a menial job and just live like an everyday man, he's going to find his bride-to-be. I mean, this is a fairy tale Cinderella type story. Slash romantic comedy. Yes. We'll go to our first clip for Coming to America, and we'll uh, get into a discussion. Where do we even start with a clip? I, I mean, there's this whole movie is yeah. filled with clips. So many, but uh, I've decided to go with this one. Excuse me. 
It's Kunta Kinte! <laughs> what can I do with you, boy? Can you make my hair look like this? Oh, man, what you want to make your hair look like that for? Well, I like the way you wear your hair. Wear it natural. That's good, man. You know, I wish more of the young children's today would wear their hair natural like Dr. Martin Luther King did. That's right. You ain't never seen Dr. Martin Luther King with no mess of Jerry Curl on his head. Ain't that right? Amen. Dr. King ain't come walk around like that. You know, sweet, I met Dr. Martin Luther King once. And you lying. You ain't never met Dr. Martin Luther King. Yeah, I met Dr. Martin Luther King in 1962 in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm walking down the street, minding my own business, just walking off, feeling good. I walk around the corner, man woke up, hit me in my chest, right? I fall on the ground, right? And I look up at Dr. Martin Luther King, I said, Dr. King! He said, oops, I thought you were somebody else. Oh, man, you lying. You ain't never met Martin Luther the King. Knocked the wind out of me. Yes, he did. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. No, he did not. Hey, boy, why are you so worried about how you look anyway? Well, I am trying to gain the interest of a certain young lady. I ain't never heard no woman giving no man no love just because his hair look good. That's right. Is this American girl? Yes. <laughs> you got to go through a papa. See, that's a big misconception. People don't know that about American women. Ain't got nothing to do with your hair or your pocket. You get in good with American woman's father, you in good with her. Ain't that right? He ain't lying. That's right. You get in good with the father, you home free. Mm-hmm. Home free. Like a boy. So like I was saying in the beginning, uh, Coming to America was sort of the height of Eddie Murphy's fame and career. He had had two breakout hits with uh, 48 Hours and Trading Places for Paramount Pictures. And Paramount signed like a five-picture deal with Eddie Murphy. Which is crazy. Yeah, and so he had a massive, massive hit. The biggest hit of his career with Beverly Hills Cop and uh, The Golden Child and then Beverly Hills Cop 2, which is also a pretty big success. Uh, So this was on the heels of Beverly Hills Cop 2. He... uh, Decided to rework with John Landis, who had directed him in Trading Places. Uh, John Landis, I would say this was also the height of John Landis's career. Um, and I think it was a good choice to choose someone who, a director who had mainly dealt in comedy. Beverly Hills Cop 2, uh, say what you want about it. They paired Eddie Murphy up with action director Tony Scott, who was more about... Uh, the visuals and and not so much about comedy story yeah. like working with actors. I think this is Eddie Murphy's funniest film, and I think it also <laughs> is uh, display, displays some of the best characters he's come up with for one of, for one of his movies. And this being the first film that he did the multi character thing, uh, you know. And even though Eddie Murphy was again at the height of his fame when he came up with the idea of doing these multi characters. Paramount was not really hip to that. They just didn't know how that would work, and they didn't really see the advantage of doing all this makeup and spending the money to have a character be played by Eddie Murphy where they weren't even seeing that it was Eddie Murphy. Yeah, yeah. But uh, he was able to convince the studio. He hooked up with Rick Baker, who had already made a name for himself doing special effects makeup in a lot of horror films, but not so much doing Mm -hmm. like aging makeup, but... uh, it worked really well, and they did a, uh, I think it was like Eddie Murphy or John Landis paid for a test to dress Eddie Murphy up as the old Jewish man. Yeah, yeah, they had they had him come in as the old Jewish man that we see in the in the barbershop scenes, and he came in and was talking to, I don't know if it was the head of Paramount or whoever it was, but John Landis is like, this is Saul. I'm like, he to meet Saul, and the guy's like, I, why, 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 are you, why are you here? And so John Landis is like, all right, Ed, Eddie, go ahead and uh, tell him a little bit about yourself. And after that, him doing, because John Landis already knew that he could do, you know, the stereotypical, like, New York Jew voice. And he he knew that he could nail that. But after the makeup with Rick Baker, it really just greenlit the whole picture after that. And Rick Baker was very confident in his skills, of course. But he even he was a little apprehensive. How are you going to make Eddie Murphy look like an old white Jewish man? You know, and it it is so spot on. And I know uh, in a lot of stereotypical ways, this man that he portrays is a stereotype. But man, is it um, it's pretty funny. And it's it's <laughs> it's it's easy to forget how much at ease Eddie Murphy was at doing different voices up until this point. I mean, he sort of got his start doing voices and doing characters on yeah. Saturday Night Live. Yeah. In the films post-Saturday Night Live, there are moments where he would do like a goof here and there, but I think this was one of the first movies where he really got to flex that talent of of adopting like a 
a nuanced voice and character and being able to kind of run with it. And I know in interviews, Eddie Murphy has said that by them, you know, Rick Baker applying the makeup, he was able to sort of disappear into a character and he didn't have any sort of self-consciousness because you, people couldn't see him as Eddie Murphy. He could just totally disappear and just kind of give it his all and like run with it. It really freed him because it's very well known that Eddie Murphy can, you tell him to do a Frank Sinatra voice, you tell him to do this or that, and and he's got it. But by being able to dress up as these characters or some vague idea of what this character is supposed to do in this movie, the makeup just made, made everything about that, made the voice. You know, maybe Eddie had a voice or an idea about the character before, but once that makeup got on him, that's what really solidified um, each character that he plays in the movie. It's kind of wild when you stop and think about just like, for instance, I mean, granted the barbershop scene where Eddie Murphy is playing dual characters but um he's he's in if you if you're unfamiliar with the scene the barbershop scene um there are three barbers that run this shop there's eddie murphy not playing the the main character of prince akeem and arsenio hall who's also in heavy makeup too and arsenio hall plays akeem's assistant that comes with him to america he's playing another barber and then eddie murphy's childhood friend Clint Smith is playing another barber, and, and Eddie Murphy's also playing the old Jewish guy. The old Jew, the old Jewish man that just hangs out with these these but, guys in a barber shop. And it's a, you know, and you, and you think of just about the the complexities of of acting a scene where you know you're having to not only converse with yourself, having to just shoot that, having to say, okay, now we're gonna go, I'm gonna take this makeup off, we're gonna redo the scene, and I'm gonna be this other character. Yeah. But then it gets gets even more complex when you think about the scene where they're at the uh, Black Awareness Rally, and you know Eddie Murphy is playing Akeem, the regular character. Of course, the the barbers, and then uh, is uh, Jackson Heights own Randy Watson <laughs> uh, with his band Sexual Chocolate, and uh, you know there's a lot Sexual of chocolate. there's a lot of cross cutting. You know, there's cross cutting between. You know, yeah. Eddie Murphy's Akeem watching himself perform and then cutting to the the Barbara character. And there there's so much going on, but there's never a moment where, you know, it flows so well together and he does a character so well. You don't stop and say like, oh, weird, mm-hmm. this is kind of off-putting. It's not. It's, it doesn't feel complicated or anything. It, it flows so well. But just the logistics of, of making yeah. that happen were very complex. And I think that Eddie Murphy just doesn't get the credit he deserves for doing all these characters and then having to... It's so much work. Have, having to do all that yeah. shooting of when, you know, of course, making a movie would be much easier just to get different actors and you could just, you know, yeah. they'd be ready to roll. And John Landis did a lot of easy cheats, you know. It wasn't like there were... It was just stand-ins and cutaways, basically but the way that it's done it flows like perfectly and i think the main so the main character that murphy plays the character of akim the prince who comes to america searching for his bride his bride uh i really love the way he i mean he plays this character with such a lovable charm in this sort of like naive way because he is this person who's been completely pampered and waited on hand and foot his entire life and now he's you know smack dab in the middle of queens new york you know he's been living in this palace and now he's in like one of the poor communities Mm -hmm. in new york the idea is that eddie murphy wants to uh, a woman to not know that he has money so the idea is is that you know he wants to work a regular job and he's never had a job before he wants and, to be like the most common man and just be be exactly who he is and 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 Akeem as a person you could could imagine you know a prince being very hoity-toity and elitist and and while Akeem has is from a country a fictional country that has just an ungodly amount of money just at his disposal at any time um you would think that a guy like this would just be completely out of touch. And in some ways, Akeem is out of touch, but like he's, he's extremely educated, as is everyone from this fictional country of Zamunda. Um, he's very educated. He's very kind, very friendly, and, and eager um, to the point that, you're, <laughs> that, that I think even the common person's like, what's up with this boy? He yeah. ain't right. <laughs> well, yeah, and where I think where a lot of the good humor parts come from is the fact that 
Akeem's character doesn't really know how to interact with the normal everyday person. And so he does come off very strange. The normal everyday American. A normal everyday American, like, yeah. At the beginning of the movie, I mean, it's it's implied that uh, he hasn't even had to tie his own shoe. He hasn't mm-hmm. even had to Brush his wi- teeth. wipe his own butt <laughs> after he's used to the bathroom. So it's like he's not only having to do like these normal tasks for you and I, but he's almost he almost has like a childlike quality yeah. to him. And I think it works really well. A lot of the humor's played up into that. And I also do like that once he gets to the city, uh, this barbershop that he goes to, which, like we said, these other characters in barbershop are the played barbershop's by. barbershop's like in the, in the basement of his apartment yeah, building. Yeah, and, and I do love that the barbershop guys sort of, they, every, they're sort of like the beat for the acts in the movie. You know, they, they sort of motivate the plot. You know, they give him advice and every time they're giving him advice or, or someone's coming to them for information, they, they help push the story along. And I really like that. I like that the, the use of those characters, it's, it's really funny. And it's also used as like a very clever plot device. I wonder if the barbershop guys are the most beloved collection of characters th- in the in this movie. I would I would I would watch an entire film just of the barbershop <laughs> guys. I love Arsenio Hall's character in that. Like I don't know who he's trying to be in that, but I I love I love that man. I love and that he's his, always eating. He's always eating, and he's like, oh yeah, he right. Mm-hmm. But I do love my favorite is is I love Clint Smith's character of how he doesn't have too much to say, but I just love that he's sort of like always calling out. Eddie Murphy's character for like lying or like or like exaggerating mm-hmm. the story. And if you didn't know, Clint Smith is he hasn't he wasn't really in you know too much, but he's Eddie Murphy's childhood friend. So it's extra cute addition that he's like these barbershop guys. They're all friends and they all interact like they've been friends for a really long time. So it's kind of cute that he's with Arsenio Hall, who's a buddy, and Clint Smith. Yeah, this movie definitely feels like a. A lot of, you know, they seem like old friends in there in the barbershop. Oh, yeah. Those are some of my favorite scenes. I really enjoy it. Yeah. So we'll go to another clip soon. But before we do, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Rick Baker, who did the uh, aging special effects make special effects makeup here. He did five films with Eddie Murphy, this being the first. Uh, he went on to collaborate with Eddie Murphy on makeup for both of the Nutty Professor movies, um, also uh, Life, which was my pick of the week, as well as Norbit. Mm -hmm. which I think was like the last film they did together. When John Landis asked him to do this movie, uh, he was just coming off of Gorillas in the Mist, which was huge for special effects as far as like, you know, there there were real gorillas in that, but there were also people in gorilla suits. And in order to, you know, making animals is, is, is one thing or making animals look real and believable is one thing. But one thing Rick Baker found in doing that, you know, he'd been making monsters and like you know been involved with horror movies for a while but one thing that was a challenge was making a human making making someone look realistic and believable and you know the old jewish guy was probably like the biggest challenge and also making these characters look enough different from from eddie murphy that the studio was happy with it you know kind of resembling eddie murphy but also being a completely different character so yeah, making making a human was a uh, a big challenge. Yeah, and Rick Baker um, had got brought into the project. He worked with uh, John Landis prior on American Werewolf in London, which was one of the first, I believe, it was the first special effects movie to be inducted into the Academy Awards as a category to win, and he was one of the first uh, winners of the Academy Award for special effects makeup. And then, of course, he went on to do. Amazing collaboration with John Landis on the thriller video for Michael Jackson. Yeah, and so he, he did, seemed like a very. Um, he did Harry and the Hendersons. Which yeah, he did I Harry and Hendersons. Harry and the yeah, Hendersons. And, uh, you know, got to start working um, on the first couple Star Wars movies as mm-hmm. as some some minor effects work there. So I think he was a perfect fit for Landis and Eddie Murphy, and and certainly Eddie Murphy trusted him enough to. To go on to use them multiple times. Oh, yeah. and the, the the combination of Eddie Murphy being amazing at coming up with characters and doing impressions, and then you've got a guy who's considered one of the best special effects artists around until he retired a few years ago because CGI kind of 
pushed him out and practical effects aren't a thing anymore. I think all the special effects do are just, they just help enrich um, an already really solid story. Yeah, and I think the for for me, the the makeup effects in this movie are more about the fact I don't realize that they're effects. I think that's the biggest thing about this movie. To me, you know, in sci-fi films and horror films, it's like the idea is like the gag, seeing how cool the gag worked. But this one, it's almost like the opposite. It's like not knowing that it's makeup, that you're just buying the fact that these guys are like in their 60s or 70s. Yeah. Yeah, and I I know I I definitely remember when I was a kid not realizing that some of these characters were were being played by Arsenio Hall and and Eddie Murphy. I I didn't realize that because they looked that different, but but to me that I mean that's incredible and I love that that I, you know, didn't realize that, but that was a criticism when this movie came out that people were saying, "Oh, I'm too distracted." Eddie Murphy's three characters in this scene. I'm, it's just so confusing. I don't know what I'm. I don't know what I'm. It doesn't. I'm not even following the plot anymore. But that and and that kind of irritated Eddie Murphy because he's he's like, if you know that I'm playing all of these characters, but it's confusing you because it doesn't look like me. Like, aren't I doing a good job then? Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I and I wonder too if like they never revealed. That it, you know, because I would have loved to have seen this in a theater, not knowing any information and being like, yeah. oh, you know, I doubt that anybody. I feel know. like I remember some previews that were like starring Eddie Murphy and, and Eddie Murphy, exactly. Yeah. Um, but and man, I, and I and I will say I don't know that there was really prior to this a movie where an actor tried to do this, tried to play like you know, not this many characters, characters anyway. Unless kind of crazy. We're gonna go to our next clip. We'll come back. We'll talk about the cast. Uh, what else are we gonna talk about? We'll talk about Eddie Murphy and kind of where he got his start and just kind of the trajectory that his career has taken since the beginning. And you said there was some script controversy. Yeah, there's some... You were telling me, y'all, you get into that because you know more about than I do. Costuming talk. We'll go to another clip from Coming to America. Here we go. Hello. Hi. I am Akeem. Nice to meet you, Akeem. I have recently been placed in charge of garbage. Do you have any that requires disposal? No, it's totally empty. Well, when it fills up, don't be afraid to call me. I'll come take it out most urgently. That's good to know. When you think of garbage, think of Akeem. Well, um... I have to get back to my sanitation duties. Maybe we'll have a chance again to talk on a professional level. Goodbye, Kim. So though Eddie Murphy is the star of the movie and, and does also many other characters, we can't go without saying what a great ensemble piece this is because I think everybody adds a lot of legitimacy to this film. You know, starting with uh, James Earl Jones as, as King Joffy Jofer, Eddie Murphy's dad. You his, know, he his, just has this like very stoic, serious quality to him, especially when he comes to New York looking for his son. You know, every, everybody's like fearful of him. Yeah. And then... Um, uh, the owner of McDowell's, uh, John Amos. John Amos, yeah. Um, who I just—he's—he's he's one of my favorite characters in this. He's so jolly and cute, and uh, you know his character is very intelligent. But he's looking to climb. He's a—he—he's a climber, and what he adds to it—it's—it's it's pretty good. Um, I have to say, uh, Madge Sinclair, who's Prince Akeem's mom. Um, she's she's been around forever, and I really love her addition to this too um a little fun i don't know if this is a fun fact or whatever but uh madge sinclair and john amos were both in roots like the original the original roots and then um james earl jones was in roots the uh next generation there's the whole thing about how the barbershop guys referred to prince akeem as (laughs) as kunta also um a movie where a lot of people, you know, got their start. We've got Cuba Gooding Jr. as the kid getting his hair cut. And one Samuel, of early, yeah. Samuel Jackson. Uh, Vondi Curtis Hall is the guy from Zamunda who's working the concessions who, who catches Eddie Murphy when he's 
waiting to use the restroom. And Eric LaSalle, who plays the uh, kind of douchey, wealthy boyfriend of... Uh, Just let your soul glow. <laughs> Perfect. God, how could we not mention soul glow? Um, Eric he, LaSalle said that people still like sing that song to him, you know, 30 years after this movie's come out. That stuff is dripping off his hair in this movie. And also, Eric LaSalle's girlfriend... Who is the 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 love interest? We can't not talk about Miss Lisa McDowell. I love her addition to this movie, and she was pretty much a newcomer to to Hollywood, or you know, really wasn't known that much. And she was up against Vanessa Williams, pop star and singer actress wow. Vanessa Williams, who I think is one of the most beautiful women that's ever existed in the world, next to Madge Sinclair. I can't stop talking about her to you. I just love Madge Sinclair. I love Madge Sinclair so much. It's like saying her name. (laughs) And she's got a great name. R.I.P. But Shari Headley, who plays Lisa McDowell, she's very endearing in this movie. And and the way that Akeem is trying to woo her, I can see how you would need a certain vulnerability in the Lisa character. Not that Vanessa Williams can't be vulnerable, certainly. But there's something about Vanessa Williams that... She just looks like a a strong woman, and she's going to be okay even if she gets her heart broken. But Shari Headley, the way that she plays Lisa, she's just the girl next door, and you can easily see why why Akeem falls for her. And certainly we can't forget about Arsenio Hall, who plays Eddie Murphy's sidekick, Semi. He he really does knock this one out of the park as far as, as his portrayal of, of his main character and then the additional s- supplemental characters that, that um, you know, he's in makeup for, too. And I did find it really interesting in, in watching an interview with with he and Eddie Murphy, how him talking about how there's something in these characters that's within both of them. Like, he said that there's a certain sweetness that's in Eddie Murphy's Akeem that he's really able to to bring a lot to this part because of that and I was surprised at his honesty that he was like there I am kind of chauvinistic and there's semi is very chauvinistic and and he's like I can I identify with that I'm not necessarily proud of it but if that's true it's easy to see why he why he nailed this part so well and I think we had one more person to talk about. Yeah, last not, last but not least, a uh, quick shout out to Paul Bates for doing the She's Your Queen to Be, which is uh, one of my favorite. She's your queen <laughs> it's one of my one of my favorite bits. Be. And just how he goes serious faced when he gets done singing. I think he auditioned with that. Really? Too. I, I don't think that it, it might have even if it was written, he definitely auditioned mm. with that and that's what got him the part. I would I would I would think so then. <laughs> Um, but last but not least, uh, Louis Anderson, who kind of offers a lot of funny little bit parts, as Louis um, Anderson does, and I and I do think that Louis Anderson is kind of a play on, uh, you know, in the eighties, it was very typical of like comedies where they'd have an all white cast, but then they'd have just like one quote unquote token black character coming to America was sort of a a, a jab at, at how many times studios had done that, so they made a quote unquote. Uh, token white character yeah. and Louis Anderson was just you know just there for some quick little comic bits and then you know not really a part of anything no, else going there, on not you know there was no reason really for him to be in it I do feel it necessary to talk about just real quickly if I can the costuming that uh, happens in the beginning of coming to America because we do spend a, a good what 20-25 minutes in Zamunda, with fictional fairy tale land that man, I wish I could live there. That's amazing. Everyone is educated, seemingly healthy, and impeccably dressed, and it just looks like kind of this fairy tale oasis. The idea of Zamunda was to create this world and kind of furthering along this idea of, the, of this Cinderella story. But the woman who did um, all the costume design for this movie, whether it was in Africa or in Queens, uh, Deborah, uh, I'm going to mispronounce her name here, Nadulman Landis, who was, or who is John Landis, the director's wife, um, she did all the costuming and, and design 
for uh, for this film. And she was kind of the most perfect person for this because apparently she had studied African culture, design, and fashion since like her late teens. Her vision for this movie was was because Zamunda is not a real place and we are creating this world. She was extracting all of these ideas from from different African cultures from all around the continent. So someone can watch this and 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 think that well that's not accurate. That's not what someone would be like or or what they would dress like. The inspiration for this came from north, south, east, west, all parts of Africa. I, I just feel it kind of necessary to say that because it is specifically targeting a culture and, um, you know, people can get upset about generalities, but it's important to know where it came from, at least. Sure. She was definitely nervous um, as a white Jewish woman. Yeah. You know, <laughs> coming coming at this but she she felt confident that at least she was educated enough to have a place to start yeah and the beginning of this movie is very it's it opens it looks like it's a very big film yeah that just a dance sequence alone dude is a huge number yeah choreographed by paul abdul yeah it's a huge number it really is yeah um, that was upon rewatching it something that i didn't realize how big the opening of this movie is yeah it and really they, sets the sets it up for like it really brings you into this world and they spend a good amount of time, too, in Zamunda, which I really do appreciate. It's not like we just spent five minutes there and that's that. Yeah. Well, let's... Uh, this was something that you had texted me about, that there was a little bit of controversy about yeah. the script to Coming to America, uh, that there was a writer who sued because he had claimed ownership of the yeah. story before it became so, what it was. And uh, yeah, it seemed like kind of a controversial story. Can you tell me a little bit about that? It definitely was a controversy and a lawsuit on top of that. A man named Art Buckwald wrote a story that's, that was called It's a Crude, Crude World, was later named King for a Day, that shared quite a few similarities between um, it and what, what has since become Coming to America. Enough similarities that he did win a lawsuit. I forget what the amount was that he came out with after everything was said and done, but there were um, enough similarities after a lot of back and forth to award him money for this. The other thing that I, I feel like is a little cringeworthy in this story is that when he came to Paramount and Paramount optioned the story, which was in 82, 83, it was talked about to have John Landis as the director. John Landis saw the script. Eddie Murphy saw the script, his manager. Basically, all of these people that were involved with Coming to America were aware of this story. So it, to me, makes it super cringy that... Um, Seems pretty suspect. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and like I said, like what I've read about this, uh, um, it's a crude, crude world version of the story. There are certainly differences most definitely but i think after watching so many interviews with eddie murphy and john landis our city hall and saying that this was eddie murphy's story that he came up with while he was on on his comedy tour you know talking about how uh, hard to find you know love when you're a famous person and you just you just want to fall in love with someone that just likes you for who you are which is completely believable completely and and i think that eddie murphy did add that to this story because I, I don't think that that was necessarily in the original um art buckwald story but uh, it makes me feel a little uncomfortable um because i understand why the man was awarded money for this so there was a tiny little controversy not not that tiny actually i think it actually uh, affected the movie a little bit um, when it originally came out but you know they've all gotten over it or at least gotten what money they could out of it while it is like I said cringeworthy Justin and I you know we weren't there we don't know you know who knows John Landis and Eddie Murphy and Art Buckwald yeah that's who know but we feel it necessary to at least let you guys know well I didn't know about that till you did some digging so it seemed like something that Paramount wanted to to hide. So before we move on to our picks of the week, we'll just briefly talk about Eddie Murphy's career. Eddie Murphy, I think, goes down in history as one of the few 
people in the entertainment business that had such a talent and a and a rise to fame at such an early age. He was doing stand up at the age of fifteen, and by the age of yeah. eighteen. Uh, audition for Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, became a cast member, uh, not a featured member yet. He was just still a, a, a bit player. But then ultimately they cleaned house. Um, and it was just he and Joe Piscopo. Just he, him, Joe left. Piscopo. And then he, what's a lot of people consider in the history of SNL, the saving grace of that era of Those were some Night dark Live. years and he, he was definitely the shining star of them. If you're not familiar with that era of Saturday Night Live, um, I can't recommend enough to you to purchase, <laughs> track down uh, the best of Eddie Murphy's Saturday Night Live because it is absolutely incredible. But Eddie Murphy, yeah, I mean, you know, he went from Saturday Night Live straight into having a hit with uh, 48 Hours, having a hit with Trading Places as a, as a stand-up comedian. Yeah. Um, with Delirious, I mean, he wasn't playing clubs anymore. He was playing arenas. Yeah, to go and selling out all over the country, and then to you know signing a five picture deal with a major studio, which it you know by the eighties they weren't really contracting actors anymore to do like yeah. five a five picture deal, um, and then has a massive hit with uh, Beverly Hills Cop, which you know for the longest time was one of the highest grossing R rated comedies of all time for for like. A long, long time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, really, like, pretty much dominated the 80s. And, you know, up until the 90s, you know, had kind of like a... He had some hits and misses around there. Yeah, hits and misses in his career. And then also Raw being uh, still, I think, to this day, uh, he did a stand-up concert in 1987. I think Raw, for this, still to this day, is one of the highest-grossing stand-up concerts of all time. Yeah, people still talk about it. Like, that was, like, filmed and... And in theaters, yeah, you know, like all over the country. It's just it's 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 crazy what happened to him at such an early age, and also that he, it's not like he was a Bill Cosby comedian. He was cursing. He was raunchy. It's incredible what he was able to accomplish in, in those beginning years, and then to kind of move on to what he is now. And he's he's a father now. He's matured, and I think when people talk to him now and are like, do a bit from you know. 83 or 87 he's like oh man come on i've moved on past that the last 20 years of eddie murphy's career like has been family films mm-hmm. um you know it's like the last r-rated movie he did was <laughs> my pick of the week which came out in 1999 which was life um and he's pretty much you know done a lot of voice work for cartoons the shrek there's like four shrek movies yeah, now, right? which is like a he you know it was a huge success and so you know he still has been very relevant you know he yeah. just shifted his format you know he shifted the the movies that he was doing um but he is uh coming out with a movie that I've been reading about for for it seems like ever now i'm desperately waiting for uh, you know to see this movie and that's um is it the, Meet Dave? No, 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 no. It's uh, it's the uh, Dolomite movie. Oh yeah, that he's doing that's that has right. just like a crazy cast, uh, directed by Craig Brewer, and then they're also making a sequel to Coming to America that's also being directed by Craig Brewer, who uh, I really loved uh, his film Hustle and Flow. If you haven't seen it, it's a great that, film. That that sequel is official. I mean, I it the is article official, yeah. Okay. And they're bringing back a lot of the main cast. Yeah, that's crazy. I'm really excited and apprehensive to see where it goes and i hope that it's great i guess yeah. that the whole lawsuit got sorted out if they're doing a yeah yeah <laughs> yeah they must they're doing a sequel maybe that maybe maybe <laughs> art art got some more some more money yeah he probably had to sign some sort of like like non-disclosure deal yeah, yeah. probably but eddie murphy's career man if you can see from where the guy started at early stand-up at 15 or 16 to where he's where he is today he's yeah He's incredible. And if you haven't yeah. seen Beverly Hills Cop or The Golden Child or Harlem Nights, movies to revisit. I mean, uh, I know you Beverly and I, Hills Cop is, is, is phenomenal. It's hilarious. I know you and I differ on Boomerang, but man... I'm, I'm going to say I like Vampire in Brooklyn and Boomerang. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. Hey, I don't know. I'm, well, I like I Norbit. And I think Bowfinger's <laughs> is great. Yeah, Bowfinger's. He's got a lot of he's got a lot of good yeah. stuff. You, and you know, in life is great too. Yeah. which uh, I'll talk about very soon here. Let's move on to our picks, picks of, the, of week. the week. Perfect. Well, since you brought it up, Justin, why don't you go ahead and uh, tell me about life? The '90s were somewhat rough on Eddie Murphy. Um, you know, he had, like we said, he had some hits and misses. Um, life was one of those 
quote-unquote misses by way of box office appeal. And this was a very high-budgeted movie and, and did not do well. I, I think there's reasons for that that I'll go into. But Life stars Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence. Eddie Murphy is sort of a hustler. Uh, Martin Lawrence is, is an accountant who's gotten deep uh, in debt with a crime boss played by Rick James. These two team up to do some bootlegging, um, but ultimately get framed for a for the murder of a crime that they didn't commit uh which we are are shown in the beginning or early in the beginning of the film and ultimately sent to serve life in prison in a southern prison camp in the early 1930s and then the next you know 40 some odd years that they spend in prison uh, we, we, you know, we get to, it's very comedic. We get to know the characters a little bit better later in the movie. Uh, again, Eddie Murphy used Rick Baker to do aging makeup of Eddie Murphy, Martin Lawrence in their late sixties, early seventies, and then all the way to their nineties, uh, which is the sort of like the last 15 minutes of the movie. This is a really, really funny film. Uh, it's got a really good story. I think it has some of the best acting by Eddie Murphy, some of the best acting by Martin Martin Lawrence. Martin Lawrence is someone I never really appreciated. This movie, actually rewatching it, because uh, I hadn't seen this movie since it came out until I rewatched it for the for this episode. And Martin Lawrence is really funny in this movie. Uh, this is a really great script. It has really excellent direction by Ted Demi, who I think was a great choice for this. Ted Demi was a very young and hip director. He started Yo! MTV Raps when he was in his early 20s, I believe. He went on to direct uh, uh, Who's the Man? He directed The Ref with uh, Dennis Leary and Kevin Spacey. Uh, he directed Beautiful Girls, which I think is a great character study. Um, I think one of his last films was uh, Blow with Johnny Depp, but this was his maybe second to last film. And I think he was a great director for this. You know, this was a big movie for him. Uh, he really got into honing in the characters, you know, letting the story um, not get beat down by the comedy. And I think really one of the reasons why this movie might not have been such a success and I think when you watch it now, it plays as a favor to the movie. But I can kind of see why maybe audiences were put off by this movie in 1999. Because up until this point, Eddie Murphy had really not done any sort of dramatic work. By no stretch of the imagination is this film a drama. But they do play up the disparity of these two serving life in prison for a crime they didn't commit. And aging in prison and being in this like very rough environment. That is not played it for laughs. Uh, there's some real sadness in this movie. This movie is actually pretty dark. And there's actually a scene toward the end of the film where they uh, confront the person who has framed them and put them in life in prison. This is much later in the film when they're much older. And that, I'm not going to spoil anything if you haven't seen the movie. That is a very intense scene. And it's a very heartbreaking scene. And the final 15 minutes of this movie where they're in their 90s and they're kind of talking to each other and kind of reflecting on the fact they've spent their life in jail both knowing that they're innocent, it's it's kind of a heartbreaking scene. Don't get me wrong, the, the, this is a very funny movie, but I do think that the the realness of, of their situation lends to the story. This is a very, I, I consider this a great movie. I mean, this I, I really uh, uh, watched it once and then watched it again a few days later. If you haven't seen this or you haven't seen it since it came out, I can't recommend it enough. It's been since... I worked in a video store and because I liked Eddie Murphy, I had, I had this one on every now and again. Um, it's one of those that I think because of, I played it in the store so much, I never really fully absorbed the narrative. Um, but I remember it very well visually. I definitely remember the, the, um, makeup. Yeah. And I, yeah. and I, and I do think that you can see kind of like the, uh, the old age makeup that Rick Baker does for these guys in their nineties is it's really so good, good. And, and the acting of <laughs> yeah. Martin Lawrence and, and and Eddie Murphy playing the same character but age 90s and even their voice it doesn't sound too exaggerated I mean they yeah. kind of do you know they're doing an old guy voice sure but they're doing it in a very authentic way um which I think is good because if I if my my sort of like a scale of good to bad for like someone who's in old person makeup doing a voice of an old person um I would put 
Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence in life is like the highest level. Yeah. You know, the best way to do that. And maybe at the bottom level, though, you know, I talked about how much I, I love Emilio Estevez and we did Repo Man and I love both of the Young Guns films. I think the worst old person <laughs> voice that's ever been committed to film is Emilio Estevez doing an old Billy Bonnie, like an old person makeup. Uh, why? Why on earth did they let him do that? Because he does the whole like, hey, I'm going to tell you a little story about when I was a kid. It's, I, it's, it's just absolutely atrocious. Um, but anyway, kudos to Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence for not going the Emilio Estevez route. I I have a special place in my heart for Martin Lawrence. I watched Martin growing up. I just love that guy as a comedian, and I think he is so adorable and cute. And as even as an old man, I love I love Martin Lawrence and and Eddie Murphy together again with Boomerang. They're adorable in that movie together too. Yeah. Um. I would love to borrow this one because I need to absorb it I will, again. I'll loan it to you. It's been like twenty years. Well, what was your your pick of the week was going a little bit further back. Yeah. Um this was 1986 uh Golden Child. This is another one I revisited which I yeah. I, I used to not like this movie and when I revisited I was like, "You know what? <laughs> Considering some of the movies that Eddie Murphy made <laughs> later in his career, this one's actually pretty pretty dang good." Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you why. That um, the Golden Child is one of Eddie Murphy's most underrated films, and it's because it's not what you're expecting out of Eddie Murphy. We've talked a lot about his career in this episode, and this is one film that stands out amongst all of these films we've talked about. That's really something different. I feel like the Golden Child got a bad rap because it wasn't uh, completely playing into what everyone expected out of Eddie Murphy in 1986. It's a fantasy film dealing with mysticism and demons, but also kind of dabbles in some the very harsh reality of child abduction. And as Murphy plays uh, the common man character, the heroic protagonist, he's also a very perfect vehicle for the audience to write out this fun adventure film, which travels all the way from L.A. to Tibet. The movie opens with a menacing looking red haired white guy played by Charles Dance kidnapping the sacred Tibetan golden child, who we learn pretty quickly has significantly strong magical powers. The child's destiny is to save the world. He's the bringer of compassion, and if he were to die, the world's compassion would die with him, and everything would fall into hell. So he's kind of important. And it's foretold that the golden child will be kidnapped and taken to the city of angels, where he will be rescued by the chosen one, who is Murphy's Chandler Gerald character. And lucky for this kid, the Chosen One also happens to track down missing persons in the Los Angeles area as his day job. While this movie does have a serious storyline, it's still filled with a, a fair amount of humor, I would say, though I don't look at this movie as a comedy. But it, it is fun and has familiar cliches which draw on inspiration from Far East flavored adventure films. So... Eddie Murphy's character of Gerald is sought out by Key Nang, played by Charlotte Lewis, who employs him to seek out and save the golden child to whom she's connected with and knows about the kid's powers. As an everyday person would, Gerald is very disbelieving of Key Nang's story about a mystical and powerful boy surrounded and kidnapped by evil forces. So at first he completely refuses to help. But after seeing how the kidnapping is linked to another missing person's case, he's tracking and, you know, receiving an astral projection of the boy followed by a parakeet who's tailing Chandler as this kind of guide to find the boy. <laughs> you still with me here? Um, the universe is obviously showing him that he has to believe King Nang's claims. Together, they form this kind of ass-whooping duo who, you know, there is a romantic subplot. They start falling for each other. But I don't think that this dominates the story. It just kind of adds depth and serves as a plot motivator later in the movie. As this is an American idea of Far East Asian culture, there are a ton of awesome 
martial art fight scenes. I mean, there've been better ones in other movies, but uh, there's, there's a decent amount of, of great fight scenes in this one. Eddie Murphy has some solid ones, but Keenang is the standout star in serving up the most beatings, especially of a biker gang that's involved a little bit in the uh, evil forces plot. Then keeping with the movie's magic and mysticism, Gerald must later traverse this cavern of nothingness to retrieve the only dagger that can kill the golden child. Therefore, he's going to keep it safe from the demonic forces surrounding him. But that's kind of one of my favorite scenes is that whole little thing of getting that dagger. I know I keep alluding to something evil, but it really isn't until the end where we see what Murphy's character is battling. And this is where I feel we are officially out of what we normally expect out of Eddie Murphy. Sure, there are more than a few funny bits in this movie, and it's definitely jam-packed full of action. But when that red-headed agent of the devil transforms into a flying demon at the end of the movie, holy crap. Um, it's just kind of like a thing that you're not expecting. And I really love the effects in this scene. It looks so real. But when this happens, Eddie Murphy just like jets into gotta save this golden child moment. Because adding in this supernatural aspect, it's kind of eye popping <laughs> this this scene. Um, it really packs a punch right at the end of the movie. And before revisiting this movie, after years of not seeing it, it is always the ending that I remember the most. Before wrapping this up, I do want to say real quickly how much I love this soundtrack, too. It's like constant guitar riffs and scale slides while mixing in some serious funk. It's just kind of, I don't know, it's just a fun addition for this movie. And the writer of this movie um, only has a couple credits to his name, that being uh, the year after Golden Child, he did Real Men. He also wrote Species and Virus, but really not that many, except for the year before Golden Child, when he did my uh, pick of the week from episode 26, Just One of the Guys. <laughs> it's just kind of funny. I don't know. I've, I've picked two of this guy's movies and he hasn't really done that, done that much writing. Anyway. I just pulled Real Men off the shelf for you to, to give to you. I, I, I love this movie when I was a kid. I, I really want you to see Jim it. Jim Belushi and John Ritter. I love me some John Ritter. R.I.P. I can't wait to watch this movie tonight. Um, all right. So The Golden Child. It's the movie in Eddie Murphy's career that sticks out, but not like a sore thumb. It's an unpolished diamond that isn't perfect. Definitely has its cliches, but man... It's so much fun. And Justin, you said this movie is the perfect companion piece to a double feature with uh, Big Trouble in Little China, which came out the same year. I think just right before. Um, you're 1000% completely right about that. I would love to watch these two movies back to back. Most definitely. Thanks for that, Lindsay. Those are our picks of the week. The Golden Child and uh, Life. So let's move on. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. And when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're going to come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shocked? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. All right, it's been since Alien that the Murray moment has been directly about a Saturday Night Live skit. But as this is an Eddie Murphy episode, how could I not go there? Okay. SNL is where both he and Billy's lives changed forever and catapulted them both to intergalactic stardom. So this Murray moment is a little inside tribute to an Eddie Murphy inspiration, along with being a pretty cute and smirk-worthy moment from a spastic 1981 Billy Murray. Now, just to get it straight, in case you're not clear, Billy and Eddie were never on Saturday Night Live as cast members at the same time. 
Along with Lauren Michaels, Billy and the entire 70s cast of SNL left the show in season five, and season six was a whole new crop of comedians who took over the show, and one of those was Eddie Murphy. But Billy did host the show twice during those years um, with Murphy. And it should probably be said that those years were 1980 to 84 seasons that were not exactly known as the glory years of Saturday Night Live. That crew got a whole lot of flack for not having the same perceived chops as the original 70s cast. Except for Eddie Murphy, of course. I remembered a cold opening sketch from a long time ago when I was a kid. Um, from the first episode Billy hosted, season six, episode 12. Murphy and the entire cast come to Billy in his green room um, and confess to him that they don't know what they're doing wrong. Why don't people like them and pleading with Billy to give them advice? In true deadpan, sarcastic Billy fashion, he just ends up telling them that they're never going to be as good as the original cast, but to keep giving it that old college effort. Um, he's going around to like each cast member and really trying hard to mine out each member's strength and comically struggling to do so. It's a little cringy, but I think it's intended to be in this sketch. There are a few sketches um, throughout the whole episode that are worthwhile, but it's really mainly to due to Billy's involvement that saves any of them from being a complete fail. However, the Murray Murphy moment, which we're calling it for this episode, comes during the opening monologue section directly after that cold opening, and it's kind of one that's hard to forget. So Billy emerges from an elevator, seemingly low-key, but then quickly breaks out in a dance, excitedly flailing his arms and legs, kind of pulling out some Blues Brothers moves, all while the SNL band is cranking out the regular opening tunes behind him, and Billy's like, how about that band? Stomping, half-running, Half climbing up a wall, Billy leaps on and off a stool almost in one breath and then jumps off the stage into the crowd, plants a giant kiss on an unsuspecting woman, and then throws another lady over his shoulder, a move that he's always been known to do in his life. But this time, he actually almost drops the lady over his back. He looks completely out of control, which is when Eddie Murphy comes running out on the stage to help calm down our host for the night. What the hell are you doing out here? You almost dropped that woman on her head, Bill. Without missing a beat, Billy goes right into his little it just doesn't matter bit from Meatballs, which was around, I mean, it was like two years, one year after Meatballs came out, but goes into that it just doesn't matter bit, but then quickly segues into another routine about how bad the Murray-Murphy duo are, how wilder they are compared to any other prior double team act. Of course, I'm emphasizing these words because Wilder and Pryor are referencing the legendary comedy team Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. That's right. We bad. Murphy responds. And then they break out into their whole version of the we bad routine from the very well-loved Wilder Pryor comedy Stir Crazy, wherein the duo are walking into jail trying to gear themselves up to look real tough when going to jail. But the Murray-Murphy duo laps into this tough guy act ready to take on the rest of this episode. It's, it seemed kind of funny to me like when re-watching this as an adult and just kind of knowing how that season went um, and kind of where SNL was at the time. It was funny that this came right after that cold opening where the cast was saying how they were worried that everyone in America thinks that they just all suck and aren't funny. This opening is shorter than most. It almost seemed like Eddie and Billy said to each other right before, let's just play off of each other with this whole Richard Pryor, Gene Wilder, we bad thing and just, you know, see where it goes. If you're familiar with stir crazy and this tough guy walk that Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor do in stir crazy. A lot of people do have kind of a problem with it or have have found it somewhat offensive. Billy and Eddie do a really good interpretation of this whole walk and their voices during the whole routine for as long as possible. And then they dive into some other comparisons. You know, I'm just going to leave it right there. Just look up the sketch. 
I feel like these little moments where comedians are doing impressions of other comedians can sometimes be forgotten, especially when it's in an unpopular season of SNL. But it was kind of a too too cute of a moment to not talk about um, in this Murray moment. Of course, Billy and Eddie have interacted at various events together, but until I hear from either dude, this SNL moment is going into my top ones. Um, although it's short, I, I can't help but uh, appreciate it. You got to do a little bit of internet searching to find this sketch unless you have this season on DVD, but um, it is worth the search. I'm sorry if it's offensive to anyone. It's probably not, though, I hope. You know, it, it amazes me that Eddie Murphy and Bill Murray never did a movie together. Mm-hmm. I feel like they're like, they have similar like comedic styles. I feel like it would have been a good pairing. They're both really good at, at improv. Like uh, Bill Murray, not so much on the, on the impression, definitely not as much as, as Eddie Murphy, but yeah, the improv factor, they could have really riffed off each other real well. Yeah. Well, thanks for that Murray moment. Before we close this out, was there any other Eddie Murphy related things we need to talk about? I think we covered everything with coming to America. I had, um, three kind of tiny little things. Okay. Um, might have time for one tiny thing, but (laughs) what were the, maybe um, pick the most, uh, what you feel to be the strongest of the three. Okay. All right. Well, how about, um, the tiny little cameo with, uh, Don Amici and Ralph Bellamy. That's a good one. Who were, uh, in trading places, uh, the two rich white guys, um, um, in in trading places, and then they have a little cameo in coming to America, where there there are these two um, homeless, destitute guys that Eddie Murphy's character gives gives a lot of cash to. Okay, oh, I didn't know that one was gonna be so good. What what else you got? <laughs> um, okay, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about. There is a little Bichon, I believe, or a poodle. I'm pretty sure it's Bichon that is featured somewhat prominently in in one scene i don't know it's a it's a whenever you can have a dog reaction shot used multiple times in a scene i'm going to laugh and i'm probably going to rewind it and watch it again but this dog who i believe her name is darla i'm not positive about that i want to know any listeners out there can you confirm or deny is this the same dog in one, Silence of the Lambs. Two, Chud Two, Bud the Chud, and the Burbs. I know that this dog, she had an illustrious career in her in the late 80s, early 90s. I want to know, because her IMDb is not clear, I want to know if coming to America, this is the same dog, Darla. Listeners, I challenge you. Know. What's the third one? Dude, these are both good ones, so <laughs> sorry. I didn't know they were going to be so good. Um, My last one. So we already talked about the uh, the old Jewish guy in the barbershop and how he kind of, how he came to be. John Landis told a story, though, about um, how he, he watched this thing one time. I don't know if it was a documentary or what it was, but they were talking about there were some some Jewish men in the 30s that were actors doing blackface and he said that this interview and like what what was happening and it just pissed him off it irritated him and like he just hated the way it was being talked about so as kind of like a backhanded slap in the face was why he had why he wanted eddie murphy to do whiteface which Aha. <laughs> Thank you very much, and I, I, um, I hope that that was John Landis's motivation. <laughs> but um, it makes it makes that part even even more uh, enriching. Yeah, I, I like it. <laughs> those well, were my uh, final thoughts. I, those were great. Those were great. <laughs> I'm not even gonna. I can't. I don't have anything to top that. So I'm just gonna <laughs> end with us saying uh, thank you for listening. That was our discussion on coming to america we hope you enjoyed it if you want to follow us on social media you can find us on facebook and instagram and twitter don't push pause podcast you can also go to our website at don't push uh what's the next movie that we have coming up for the next episode Lindsay? we're going uh is it 
Is it David Lynch's racer head? Oh, it's a racer head. Oh, man. I know. We are going full on Yeah, we are. Crazy. Whew. I got some homework to do for that. Yeah, we both, we've, we've, we've got our work cut out for So we've us. got a racer head coming up next, and uh, pretty soon we're getting close for our all- uh, our favorite month, oh October, for our, our uh, all-out uh, Halloween blowout scary movie Ooh. month. Looking forward to that. Can't wait. So um, until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks for listening. Thank you, guys.